All right, so uh, when I was 16 and I was at a camp, I know you hear a lot about camp from me, I love camp. Camp is so instrumental in people's lives and it was in mine. And I was 16 years old and I think I was a, I was a cabin leader and I think I had kids that were probably just as old as me in the cabin because we were pretty shorthanded as it was in the day. But somewhere along the line, whether it was a speaker, another you know, cabin leader, someone said to me, why don't you memorize the book of James? And I thought, that, that sounds like a great idea. I need to you know, implement some, uh, some of that discipline in my life. And so I started memorizing the book of James. And I, I started and I was getting through the first chapter and then camp kind of ended. I drove a friend of mine back to BC. I was 16. I don't know what my parents were thinking, letting me drive there. But I, I drove there, drove him back, and on the way back, and this was before the Coca-Cola, you know, back at the time of the Ark, um, when I was 16, there was the old number one highway, you know, through all the tunnels and everything like that, if you remember that. And I had my nice big NIV study Bible on my lap, <laughs> driving the number one home, looking down, reading, memorizing, looking up. Um, and, and, I, and I memorized uh, most of the first two chapters of James that way. Now, I would say this very clearly. Do not do that. Uh, don't memorize and drive. Today, you have more resources at your disposal than I did. You have audio, so use, use audio. But, you know, of those... Those times, those memories, those times of repeating that repetition of the words of James, it stuck with me, and it stuck with me to this day. And so I put that to you, actually, for this 10, 11 weeks. Would you attempt and challenge yourself and maybe in your family to memorize even just the first chapter, I think it's about 21 verses or so, uh, just give it a shot. Memorize it, put it up on your mirror, on your fridge, and, and say it, read it regularly, and you'll see that it, it sticks with you. It's a valuable thing to do, because there is good stuff in there, and that's why we're, we've decided to take that on. Now, I always like the first sort of the sermon in, a, in an introductor, the introduction to a series. Um, I'll warn you, sometimes it gets a little long, uh, just because there's stuff to unpack, but I'll, I'll do my best. But there's so much in James, but we have to sort of set the stage. We have to understand a bit of the context of the book and also uh, just kind of who, who wrote the book. Who, who is saying the words that we are reading off this page? And so we're going to start there a little bit. So let me ask you this. Who wrote the letter of James? Marcus at the front. Uh, James. Just very quietly, very quietly. Yeah, I mean, I know there's, sometimes there's tricks, right? Sometimes there's tricks in, uh, in the Bible. Um, but yes, James. So James wrote it. That's what it says. He introduces himself right at the beginning, as we'll get into. Now, it doesn't say anything else about him. He doesn't describe himself in other, any other way, aside from, as we'll see, he says that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's a guy named James, and this would lead us to understand that he was known well enough to the churches that he was writing this to, that they would know, oh yeah, we got a letter from James. Hey, let's read that letter from James. And they knew who he was. 
But for us, we might say, hmm, who's this guy named James? Because there is a few guys named James in the New Testament. There's predominantly four of them. I won't go into all of that stuff for you. But there's probably two that were the key church leaders named James. Now, one of them was um, one of the sons of thunder, as they were known, James and John. And so it could have been him, but probably not. This is why. Because he was killed. He was persecuted. He was beheaded by Herod. You'll read that in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And so that happened to him. And this, obviously, he's writing about trials and persecutions and things like that. And the the dispersion, as we'll get into, uh, he he lived it because he died during it. So he wouldn't have written it about it afterwards, most likely. Just my hunch on that one. Um, But another guy named James, and so he was kind of known as James the Just. And this is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if you're not quite familiar with sort of the the Bible uh, characters and things like that, or or how everything kind of was laid out in the Gospels, uh, this is how we... This is what we believe, obviously, of the, the virgin birth of, of Jesus. And so the angel came to Mary. You can read all, all of that um, in the Gospels. But how, how she would give birth to the Messiah. And so that the Holy Spirit would come upon her. And so Joseph, Mary's then-to-be husband, was played an important role. The angel also went to him and said, you know, this is, this is what's happening. and This is your job. But he was not going to be the biological father of Jesus. All right? So there's, there's that little bit for you there, understanding key important part. So after this, after Jesus was born, then we would understand potentially that they had more children, of which one of them was James. So we'd say he's the half-brother because same mother, but different father. Does that make sense? Now there's some controversy about that, and if you um, have been raised... Um, in Catholicism or things like that, there's all kinds of stuff you can mine about, about Mary as, you know, being a perpetual virgin and never had children and whether this was a cousin. All that, you can do some more study on your own. We are going to take the approach that's most common, most traditional Protestant view is that the letter of James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Now, sometimes we come to things and we go, well, it's the Bible. We don't really know much about the author is it really that important? Now, if you are a young adult and you really want to know more about the Bible, obviously come to Young Adults tonight and you'll hear about that. I want to tell you why it is important in this case if, in fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this letter. Because, I'll tell you this, to me it's one of the most critical really evidences for our faith. It's actually quite eye-opening to, to understand if actually one of Jesus's brothers, half-brothers, came to believe. Because, you know, it is the most difficult thing to convince your family of anything, right? I was telling my son, he's been a hockey fan all his life, as of me, I was saying, you know what, you should also try the NFL. You'll love it. Football, it's amazing. There's drama in every game. And he's like, nah, I don't know. Can't convince him. You can't convince your family of anything, right? And so here, 
it's not too much of a stretch to think this was probably a really difficult thing for the family of Jesus to get their minds around the fact that the Jesus who was raised in their home now is the son of God and always has been, but now as he enters into his ministry life in his three years where he starts doing miracles, he starts teaching, he starts declaring himself to be the Messiah, and they're going... What is going on? And we went through this in Mark, and we see that in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. If I mention a scripture in it, and if I don't read it out, you can just mark it down in your journal. Mark 3, verse 21, it says this, is that Jesus was, was hanging around there doing some teaching, and it says that his mother and his brothers were outside the house, okay? So they weren't in among all of the, the followers of Jesus at that time. They were outside And it says, they were waiting to seize him. (laughs) Remember, we talked about this. They were waiting to to take hold of Jesus, their family member, because they thought he was out of his mind. (laughs) And that's that's like, John also says this, John 7, verse 5. It says, not even his brothers believed in him. But then... Something changes everything. And we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they gather, come together. The early church is starting to be formed, waiting for the Spirit to empower them. And it says this, it says that they joined with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They were there. They were counted with the followers of Jesus as part of the early church. So what changed? What changed? Simply this, and not really simply at all. Astoundingly this, they saw the resurrected Christ. That would do it, don't you think? You know, that would do it. You're thinking, okay, this is a guy I've grown up with. You know, I've seen him around, and all of a sudden things started happening. We thought he was out of his mind. And then, you know, the religious leaders took hold of him, beat him, put him on a cross, put him in a tomb, closed the tomb with a rock. Sunday morning, boom. Rocks, stones rolled away. And Jesus is alive, and he's appearing to people. That would do it, don't you think? That would change your mind. That would change you from from unbelief to faith, and not just faith for James and, and for the other apostles, the other followers of Jesus too. It would send their life in a trajectory where they would lay down their life for the gospel. So that's what happened, and that's what we read about. You can mark, also mark down 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, where he says, where the Apostle Paul writes this, he says, Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. He brought James to faith because he saw the resurrected Lord. Now, hear, hear this just to start out with. You might have questions about God. You might have questions about, about faith, and, and you might have questions about how you, you 
kind of fix all of the things of what the Bible says into our current cultural stream. And there's a lot of mess about that. But listen, if you are in a place in your life where you're questioning, do I believe? What do I think about God? What do I think about the Bible? How am I going to live this out? Start with looking at the resurrection. Because the resurrection changes everything. Because if Jesus is dead, this sounds a lot like an Easter sermon, which we should preach every Sunday. If Jesus is dead, there's no hope for us. 1 Corinthians 15 says that. And we're to be pitied. But if Jesus is alive, if Jesus is resurrected, that changes everything. Because that gives us hope. And we put our confidence and our hope in a resurrected Lord, and that means that we too can be resurrected, that we too can have life. And so before you go into any other thing, it says, what about Christians? What do they believe about this? What does this church believe about that? What about that? Look at the resurrection and decide for yourself. Do your homework. Do some study. Look at the resurrection of Jesus. And if it is real, and if Jesus is alive, then that should change everything. It should change you from unbelief to belief, transformation of your life. That's what happened with James. Now, what happened ultimately out of that was that he was martyred probably 62 AD. Church historians and also world historians of the day, uh, Josephus Eusebius was a, a church historian. It says this, is that James, because of his proclamation of the gospel, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, under the order of the chief priests, they took James, the half-brother of Jesus, to the top of the temple. Little history interjection here is that 70 AD was the siege of, of Rome and the destruction of the temple and of, of Jerusalem laid to waste. Okay, that was about eight years later. 62 AD, temple still standing. They take James to the top of the temple and because he would not recant of his faith in Jesus, they threw him off the temple. And he was on the ground, and he, didn't, he wasn't dead from the drop. And as he's lying there, and this is what the historians say, is that he's saying, as Stephen did, and as Jesus said, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But he's still alive as he's fallen off this. And then a guy comes up with a big club and bashes in his head. That's who wrote this. So taking that and understanding someone who saw the resurrected Christ and gave his life for that gospel, I think it is important that we hear what he has to say, and ultimately, obviously, inspired by the Spirit. So I want to take you through a few things today, uh, just some things to note as we enter into this book. All right, first of all, <clears throat> things to note is, is this. Is this a, a writer with, with ADHD? <laughs> uh, it seems a little bit like that. It's a bit chaotic, the book of James. Okay, it's a, it's a letter. It reads more like an essay, but we read it as a, a letter because that's what he, it says he's writing it to. Now, if you understand the categories of the Bible is this, is that there are, there are epistles, 
which is kind of a word we don't really use, but it was a letter, those letters written to specific churches, all right? So to the church at Rome, to the church at Galatia, church at Thessalonica, all those ones, those were written to a specific church, a specific congregation. Then there's ones, epistles, letters that are, are general. They're just written to the church as a whole, not to a specific congregation. That's what the letter of James is. It's a letter that's general to it. And in this, it, it seems at times like it's not very well structured. There's a lot of changing gears. You know, it's like he's talking about this all of a sudden, squirrel, and he goes over here. <laughs> and and this, is, this is why Martin Luther, as he said of James, he said the author of James was throwing things together chaotically. And Martin Luther wasn't a real big fan of James, kind of called it a, a secondary book. But this was most likely because Martin, Ju- Martin Luther, uh, in part of the Reformation, understanding that justification was by faith alone, not by works, coming out of that, and so firmly fixed in that, and James shows another side of it, which we will, we will get into. Another commentator, Martin Debilius, he said that James is a jumbled series of unrelated bits of teaching material strung together in a largely haphazard form. It sounds like something a teacher might have said on one of my papers in Bible school. (laughs) Jumbled, unrelated bits of teaching material strung together. But as we'll see, there may be more connection to this than we see at first glance. Secondly, where is Jesus in the book of James? This has been one of the, one of the rationale, one of the reasons why sometimes, you know, James has tried, you know, found its fit in the canon is because it seems to lack some, some theological you know, things about Jesus. It doesn't say anything about the saving work of Christ, nothing about the Holy Spirit, nothing about the resurrection. And so with that, we would presume, presume that this audience, they've had the theological teaching. They're, they're grounded in the spiritual truths of the work of Christ. They're well-versed in Christianity. They know the stuff. They know the right things. The problem is, they weren't putting it into practice. And that's one of the goals of James. Third, James in this is a straight shooter. It's direct in its pastoral approach. He says some things that cut right to it. You know, he says, you praise God, and then you curse your brothers. Like, this should not be. He says, sin gives birth to death. He tells the audience to put away your rampant wickedness. He says, you are deceived. So it's pretty straight to the heart. Cuts right to it. And yet very pastoral, because he often uses the word brothers, or my beloved brothers, dearly beloved. These are terms that he uses throughout and saying it's, it's a pastoral care, but it's very, very direct. Fourth, it's like this. It's like this. It's filled with a lot of metaphors. And so I invite you with your journal to, to take actually opportunity where, you, where when we come across them or in your reading to circle them, those things that are, are metaphors. So he talks about the billowing sea, the withering flower, a mirror, a horse's bit, a ship, a fire, taming animals. There's a very much a, a universal uh, approach to this that for every generation reading this letter, you can understand what he's talking about. It's very universal and appeal. Fifth, 
He says, put some deed in your creed. And this is a term I'll use throughout my, my series in James when I'm speaking. Putting some deed in your creed. Your creed is what you believe. You write it down. You say, this is what I agree to. This is what I believe wholeheartedly. But if it just stays on the page, what good is it? What good is it? Put some deed in your creed. It's practical Christian living. And this is what James is going to say clearly throughout. Faith takes action. Faith puts boots on, gets to work. All right, so here we go. We're going to get into it now. James 1, verse 1 to 11 slash 12. We'll sort of use verse 12 as a crossover for next week too. All right, here we go. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. All right, I want to identify just for today briefly three sort of clear results, three products, three clear things that happen in this text. First of all, the result of trials, the result of trials for the Christian, for the believer, verse 2 to 4. First of all, again, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. I always I find that funny in the ESV. It's like, when you meet trials, it's like, hey, how you doing? You know, you probably wouldn't run towards it and, uh, and meet it, but it comes into your life. You meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I want you to take the word uh, trials and circle that in your journal. Trials. We're going to use this word, trials, and also next week talking about temptations. It is the same Greek word, same use, but it's, it's actually going to parse it out a little bit differently. But trials uh, for today. It says trials of various kinds. You can underline that, various kinds. And that's a, that's a really helpful thing for us, understanding that this particular congregations that he's writing this to, to the dispersed. These are the ones that have left Jerusalem out of persecution. They've scattered, they've taken the gospel with them, and they've started churches, planted churches, and the gospel has come to you and me because of that. So they, but it says various kinds, and so the various kinds, it, it includes 
various kinds, all kinds, things that you didn't necessarily want or expect throughout all time is included in this trials. (laughs) So a trial, if we were to define it very, very basically, it's something that's an unwelcome (laughs) and unanticipated experience. That's difficult. That's a trial. It's unwelcome. Didn't ask for it. Didn't run out to meet it. (laughs) It just came at you, and it hit you when you weren't expecting it, and you didn't anticipate it. And so this is, this is a trial. It could be something that's common in life, an everyday experience um, that has happened throughout time, where there is cutbacks, loss of jobs, a sickness, a diagnosis that's happened. A common experience could be something that, that our enemy, Satan, has, has deliberately set to, to tempt you, which we'll get into next week. Or it could be something even that God has allowed or he has, has initiated in your life as a trial. Why would this happen? And what do we do as a result of this? Well, the result, James says, is steadfastness, perseverance. The, the Greek word is hupomene. <laughs> hupomene, it's fun to say. Uh, but it's steadfastness. It's a stick to It has to do with bearing up under. It's like there's a weight that's crushing down on you, but you stand firm. And this is a, this is a trait that we admire, right? And throughout history, and in this particular culture, it was a virtue that was, was recommended, it was highly valued, hupomene. It was like you have a steadfastness, a perseverance. And we see this in, in movies, we see this in literature. This is the things that we like to watch. We, you know, if it was you know, Frodo in, in The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, it's like you, you see one, one of those orcs, you know, or one of those ring wraiths things, scary, and it's like, oh, I'm out. Bing! Toss that ring. I'm not doing that. Right? Nope. Says this is my, this is my mission, this is my burden to bear. And he perseveres. And, and there's that whole time where he's like going through that whole area, circling around. I'm just like, come on, can we fast forward through this part? Because it's like he's just, but it's perseverance. It's hupomene. <laughs> or, you know, take Rocky, old movies, you know, from the 80s, one, two, three, four, five, six, I don't know. But if Rocky, you know, would just have taken one punch, boom, laid out on the ground and just lay there, movie over, not so great. No, he gets up. Marion, whatever he yells, you know. <laughs> Pomini, he's, he's, just, he's ready, he's taking it on. And we see this in our lives as well. And this will strike home. But this is the reality. We stand here or wherever you stood on your wedding day and you shared vows. You expressed your covenant vows to each other. And we say traditional things like, you know, in sickness and in health, in wealth or in poverty. Whatever comes our way, we'll stick with you. Hupomene. 
But, you know, oh, he's got a man cold. I'm out. No. You persevere. Or you hire an employee and you, you ask him to, you know, to do some sales. And he says, oh, man, I did one cold call. And the person said, no, I had no interest in that product. I quit. Listen, there's a reason why we call it work, right? It's not always fun. Next day, you go back. It's perseverance. This is a trait that we admire. Or your son, you know, says to you one day, Mom, there's this, there's this kid in school that picks on me and calls me names. And you say, well, son, you're homeschooled, and that's your brother. <laughs> so suck it up. Perseverance. Perseverance, it's not the end in itself. Okay, it's not the end of our life where, where people will say nice things about you and say, you know, they really had hupomene. You probably won't say that. They had perseverance. It's not that that's the end goal. What is the end goal? The idea is that it's reflective of God because he is the one that has shown us what it means to be steadfast in his love for us. But he's the one that has said, I will never let you go. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, that it says that, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So he stuck with it. And he stuck with us through it all. See, the goal of our Christian lives is, is not happiness or ease, but it's teleos, the word for per- perfection or maturity. It's wholeness. And we see this throughout Scripture. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance. Same word. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. This is the result of trials. And you can't achieve this maturity without trials. How we wish we could, right? Man, if only I got a big bowl of popcorn and I got my remote control watching Netflix, I'll just bring on maturity. I'm ready. Just bring it on, right? I wish it would be that way, but it doesn't. It comes through hardships. But it's not comfortable. It's refining. As we see throughout Scripture, talking about gold that's refined through what? Through fire. Testing produces perseverance. It's, it's like a tree here in southern Alberta, you know, with the wind. What happens to a tree in southern Alberta? It either snaps or it grows down deep. The roots grow deep to withstand the wind. This is maturity or completeness in us. It's the end result Without trials, you'd become self-dependent. And you'd ignore your need for God who provides you with strength and enables you to face whatever comes at you because he's with you. And we only clearly recognize that in weakness and pain. So the results are maturity in, in our faith, developing Christ-like character. But then he says joy, and this is one that just messes us up, right? He says, consider it, count it all joy. How are we going to see joy in that? But again, understanding that the joy is not something that we, we talk, you know, understand as part of our culture when we talk about joy or happiness. 
That's not Christian joy. Christian joy is not a temporal, fleeting moment of happiness, but it's a settled spiritual state inside. And how can we have that? Because we know that God is sovereign, that he is God, that he is good. And he is about accomplishing his purposes. The joy is not in the circumstance of trial, but it's in the result, realizing that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. Verse 12, as we'll carry on next week as well, but it talks about a reward, that that's a, that's a result as well. There's a crown of life. It says when you have stood the test, when you've persevered, there is reward. That's a result. All right, secondly, there's a result as he goes on to talk about uh, wisdom and being double-minded, verse 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. All right, so here's, here's a clear thing, and you can circle it, underline it, asterisk, whatever it is. It says this. It says, if you need wisdom, what do you do? You ask. This is a, this is a promise of God. It says, if anyone needs wisdom, ask for it. And what does God do? He gives it. And he gives it what? Abundantly, generously. All right? And he gives it without finding fault, without reproach, without judging you and saying, oh, look what you did with it last time. You know, there's, there's no reproach. It's like he gives it abundantly. Why? Because it's his to give. Because he's the source of it. I'll just tell you, write down Proverbs chapter 8 and uh, read that this week sometime. And it's fascinating because it talks about wisdom as being there before anything was made. Anything in creation, wisdom was there. It was how things were made. So God has all wisdom, and yet he doesn't, he's not stingy with it. He wants to share it, and he wants you to ask for it, and he wants to give it to you. But then it says, but then, if you doubt, if you doubt. Now, when we read the word doubt, and it says, you, you doubt, you get nothing. You're like, oh, man, I have so many doubts, so many, so many questions. Listen, this isn't talking about honest, intellectual doubts, because that's part of being human. And we see that throughout the book of Psalms. We see the psalmist, you know, David crying out and saying, God, where are you? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And this is so unfair. And this is just, that's part of our human condition is to have honest doubts. And so that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about someone that waffles. <laughs> he's double-minded. Do you know anyone that, that waffles constantly? I hate saying waffles like that because I love waffles and it sounds so negative. But you know someone that waffles, they're like, I don't know if I should do this, and I don't know if I should do that, and I was like, do you know anyone like that? Yeah, it's like, it's someone you're pointing to yourself, um, that's me. They, they waffle, they go back and forth, and what happens as a result of that is they do nothing. One of uh, the churches that I was at, I won't name them, uh, before this church, uh, was they, we had a great group of young adults, but they would stand outside after the service, and they would, and it might happen here once in a while. But they'd say, what do you want to do for lunch? We should go for lunch together. Oh, yeah, I like lunch. Uh, where should we go? And they stand around, they talk, and they say, well, I don't know. You want to go to Boston Pizza? Uh, I don't know. Should we go to Five Guys? Should we go to Two Guys? Well, this group of young adults in this church, they would stand there literally for half an hour 
wondering where we should go for lunch. And then some of them would say, yeah, you know what, I got to go. I'll see what's in the fridge at home. They do nothing. They waffle back and forth, and then nothing happens. Are you guys laughing? Because this is a real condition, right? Real thing. (laughs) I'll I'll say this. Let me know where you're going today, and I'll join you, because I'm free for lunch. But this is what he's talking about, someone that's, that's waffling. They're, they make so many, they're, they're just like, I don't know this, I don't know about that. And so they're unstable. This is, this is the definition of what James is talking about here, of a double-minded person. They're unstable. They're constantly changing allegiances, and they never commit. And that's why he says they're like a wave of the sea. They're just blown back and forth by the wind. And so the result of this double-mindedness is inaction. And this is what the evidence of faith we'll see over and over again in James, is, is this is the evidence of faith, is if you do something. See, faith gets the boots on. And so he'll talk about this as far as having friendship with the world or, or friendship with God, and, and you try to live in both, and it's impossible, you can't. As a result as well, you have no expectation of receiving anything from the Lord. Because even if you did, you wouldn't know if it was from the Lord because you've been double-minded. We're going to see more of that, double-mindedness through James. Okay, third and finally, there's the result of the rich oppressors, verse 9 to 11-ish. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Scorching heat withers, flowers fall. You see that. Frailty in the riches. Now, understanding this is going to be key to understanding a lot of things throughout James because he's going to talk about the the rich and the poor. So it's important to understand what that means. So when he's talking about the poor or the lowly, he's speaking of the oppressed, the marginalized, he's going to refer to widows, orphans, people that are victims of the dishonesty of their employers. And let me tell you this, in this ancient culture, this would be about 90% of the people. It was about 10% that were the wealthy, the nobles, the, the ones that were kind of you know, corrupt, and then 90% of the other. There was no middle class. It was rich or poor. And so when we're speaking of poor, this is, this is who he's saying. It's, they have nothing of this world to lean on, no resources on their own, and so all they have to trust in is God. And so he says they're blessed. This is very similar to the, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Beatitudes. Eugene Peterson says this about blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. So the poor, the poor in spirit, the ones that are, they're at the end of their rope. Brennan Manning wrote, the poor in spirit are like survivors of a shipwreck. Out at sea, all the things they use to rely on no longer matter. All that matters is this passing plank to which they reach out with the desperation of the drowning. Adrift on an angry sea, the shipwreck never ask what they did to merit the plank. They simply receive the plank like a gift, knowing there was absolutely nothing they did to deserve it. It's the poor in spirit. 
But the rich, and this, the rich is saying, not just those that have wealth and not just ones that have all the money, the rich in this negative context of what he's saying here, these are the ones that they use their money to exploit. Or they're ones that are, are consumed by their desire to be rich for status or for power. The rich are those who allow their wealth to corrode their care for the poor. That's who he's speaking of here, the poor and the rich. And so the result for the rich is what he says, is their sudden loss. It's, it's the sun that rises, it's just boom. Just like that, flowers are, are wilting, the grass is dried up. There's a recognition of the frailty of, of wealth. And we see, this, we see this throughout our world, those that have more money than they could ever spend. But it can be gone just like that, or they, they die and they can't take it with them. There's humiliation, and as we'll see in the rest of James, there's also judgment on those who treat the poor the way that they are treating them. So again, we're going to see more um, of these themes throughout James as we move through it. So to, to leave you with this, just as the, the last kind of thought, James, this book is about practical Christian life. Maybe you found yourself in that situation. You, you know a lot of things about the Bible, or you know a lot of things about God, or you know what it means to, to follow Jesus but you find that you're just struggling to put it into action. I hope this series encourages you, because I know I need that as well. I know lots of stuff, but I have to put something into action, otherwise, as, as, faith says, or as James says, faith is dead. So, as faith is putting its boots on, are you ready? Are you ready for this? Are you ready to, to put some deed in your creed? Let's pray.